me, Bailey. Help him, dear father. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God. Something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. I forget that it's one of the darkest movies that was made during that era. You don't think about some of the things that are out there, but I love the way the opening scene starts off. You, you hear all these people praying for George Bailey. You know, his daughter prays for him. Something's wrong with daddy. Please bring him back. George's a good guy. Give him a break. And then there's this conversation between God and, and someone named Joseph that's in heaven. And if you watch the rest of that, you'll see there's an ideal of an angel and someone named Clarence who's going to get sent down. And I, I do have to just stop for a second and just help us to understand that, that when we pass away, if we are in fact believers in Jesus Christ and we ascend with the Father and we're in, enjoying heaven forever, we don't become angels. We're actually created above the angels. And so we don't get wings or anything like that. So I want to make sure we're theologically correct in those, those assumptions there. Now, that doesn't mean that that there aren't angels doing battle for us all the time because there are. there are. There's a spiritual warfare that is constantly going on that is battling for us. But we as human beings were made above the angels and we're actually going to rule and reign with God um, above them as well. And so angels have two, two real purposes though that I think we should understand. And throughout all of scripture, you'll always see this. Their two purposes for all of angels are to glorify God and to spread his message. Um, we share those same um, those same responsibilities and goals, but we have some, some other things that God has given to us too. And so I want to make sure we're theologically in the right place with this so that we don't misunderstand that we don't become angels. We are given a glorified body and we rule and reign forever with God above the angels who are his messengers who shout Hosanna and sing glory and, and perhaps fly around with six wings and all that good stuff. That's great things. But in this story of It's a Wonderful Life, it's really, it's important that we kind of see what's going on here. George Bailey is having a tough series of days. In fact, if you watch the film from its entirety, what you'll see is that George Bailey has a lot of bad days over and over and over again. George has plans. They don't work out. George wants to do this. Somebody else uh, gets in the way of that. George wants to do this. His, his father's going to pass away, and George can. And George takes on this amazing amount of responsibility. And for you dads out there, I, I think you can actually identify a lot with George Bailey. You give up a lot of the dreams and the hopes that, that you may have had individually, and part of that's just very short-sighted. Um, because you, you don't see where others are involved in your goals, in your life, in your dreams, and how God's actually given you those people to fulfill far greater than you can ever possibly dream. But sometimes that weight, and I'm sure moms, you probably feel the same way, but I'm not a mom, so I can't relate to that. And so I hope you understand that as well. But I think every one of us on some level do have that measure of, if I didn't have to worry about everybody else or deal with everybody else or, or, or take on everybody else's burdens, my life would be so much better. 
I, I could do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do that. And so at the beginning scene, what we see here is that George, uh, a lot of people are praying for him. And, and, and so that's probably our first lesson that we can learn from. It's a wonderful life. And really looking back at scripture, if we were to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it would say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us confidently go before God and draw near to his throne that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so many times we only run towards God whenever we're in need, but I want you to understand that this is an important thing for those who follow Christ is that we're also running to the throne of grace with confidence on behalf of someone else. Because sometimes they really need that. We, we value prayer very highly in our church. And we want to make sure that when someone has prayer, that we, we get a prayer request and we spend time praying for them because it matters. And sometimes, to be perfectly honest, you and I have probably all been in a situation where we don't even know what to pray. And isn't it good to know somebody else is praying for us? And the great thing is that God has said, I've opened up my throne before you so that you may come and present yourself with confidence so that when you need that, that grace and mercy will be poured out to you. And this is what people are doing at the beginning of this film. They're praying for George because he's reached his boiling point. He's reached his breaking point. And I don't know about you, but when I reach my boiling point and my breaking point, everybody else pays the price for that. I may a little bit too, but everybody else pays the price for that. And so George Bailey is a smart young man. He's got plans to go and see the world and to travel and to go off to college and to, to uh, get out of this little town, which is if you've ever grown up in a small town, you may have aspirations for that as well. Uh, and that's his goal, get out of high school, get, you know, he may check out college, but he wants to travel the world, see the world, do something, do something more than what he could possibly imagine here. And it just doesn't work out that way. And we all have that disappointment in our lives. I know that we do. And so we're going to watch a couple of different clips today and explain them as we kind of move forward. But I just want to kind of set you up here is that, that, that George has everything planned out. Famous last words. And so let's watch this together. Hey. Hey, Mary. As I was lumbering down the street, down the street, down the street. Okay, then I'll throw a rock at the old Granville house. Oh, no, don't. I, I love that old house. No, you see, you make a wish and then try and break some glass in. You've got to be a pretty good shot nowadays, too. too oh, no, course. George, don't. It, it's full of romance, that old place. I'd like to live in it. In that place? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't live in it as a ghost. Now, watch. There's right in the second floor there, see? What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Were you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? tonight can't you come, come out tonight? tonight? Can't you come, come out tonight? tonight? George, come on home, quick. Your father's had a stroke. Mary, Mary, I'm sorry, I've got to go. Oh, come on, George, let's hurry. You got a doctor? Yeah. Handle's there now.
Mary had just met George after they were at a blind date set up and they were dancing and the gymnasium floor opened up and they fell into a swimming pool. So everybody hang on a second. I'm going to go back here and flip a switch and see if that works out. So They're dancing and they fall in. That's why she's in that robe. That's why he's holding up his pants there because they had to find dry clothes. And George had just met this girl and he's set up and he's got everything planned out. I'm going to see the world and I'm going to go check out college and see what they know. I don't, somebody chuckled back here. I heard that earlier. But Mary wants to stay in that town. She wants to find a good man. She wants to fall in love. She wants to raise children. She wants to live in that house that George said even a ghost wouldn't live in. And she hurls a rock and makes her wish based upon hopes and dreams. Now you have two different competing ideals of what each of them want and what's going to satisfy them and what makes them happy. And for Mary, it's, it's about relationships. It's about having this one person. And for George, it's about destinations and adventures and places. Do you kind of see where priorities get out of the way really quickly? And so instead of talking about it like rational human beings and having honest conversations, they throw rocks at windows and make wishes. And so kids, let me just tell you, that's not a good plan. Don't do that. As the scene kind of unfolds a little bit, George accidentally steps on the bottom of a robe. She falls out of a robe. She's hiding behind the bushes. And then they come and say, George, your father has died. And everything drops. Everything changes. He's had a stroke. He's sick. You need to come quick. George drops all of his other plans and Mary, by the way and goes on to go take care of his family, which, by the way, is quite noble. That's what we ought to do whenever family is there. But, you know, the more family you accumulate, the more you acquire, the more those priorities change and shift a little bit. And George is still focused on doing what is right, doing what is best. And as the elder son, he now is going to face spending some time with his family. Proverbs 19.21 says, A man determines his own way, but the, it is the purpose of the Lord that makes him stand. And so when we set up our own ways, it's great that we have ambitions. It's great that we have goals. God wants us to have those things. However, he wants us to be in lockstep with him. And fewer things set us off pace with what God wants for our lives than choosing to do what we want to do and not including him in the middle of that. By not following him and not even seeing where he might be guiding us, or protecting our path. I remember uh, Amanda and I had not been dating for very long at all, and um, my parents were coming into town, and they were kind of nomadic people. They would just kind of show up out of nowhere, uh, literally. I'd call them one day. They're in Ohio. Two days later, they're knocking on my, my, my door in College Station. It was frightening for a young man who made bad decisions a lot, and his mom would show up at his home. Uh, we're trying to do that with our kids, but one of them lives too far away. But it's going to happen one day, and I'm just here for that. Nonetheless, I say, hey, my parents are in town. Let's go to dinner, uh, you know, lunch. It's a free meal. It's really not a big deal meeting my parents. I, I didn't think that much of my parents. I love them both, but uh, it's not a big deal. It's a free meal. And you're a college student. You know, free meals are, are good. So she walks in. Uh, uh, we're at Bennigan's. I still remember this. Walks in. There's a book on the table there that my parents were avid readers, and they're reading this book. And uh, Amanda goes, oh, that's a great book. How, how far along have you got in that book? And my mom is like, she's having this conversation. My dad is like, oh, my gosh, she can read, you know. And uh, um, wow, where, where did he find her, right? Uh, by the time the conversation uh, dinner was over, I don't think I spoke much. But there was a whole lot of conversation about um, uh, and my dad. And some of you have met my dad, quiet, calm, meek. But when he speaks, it's like E.F. Hutton, right? I mean, you listen to what he has to say. And he just very simply said, son, if there's not a future with her, you and I are going to have a problem. <laughs> now, I had all of my life planned out. I knew what I was going to do. I really didn't, but I, I, I couldn't think past my own self. It didn't really matter what the goals and stuff were. It, it wasn't that she was or wasn't part of those. I just wasn't thinking very clearly. But for my dad, he had that figured out. I think he was tired of me messing around, and he finally figured out, hey, I'm never going to do any better. He was so right about that. <laughs> um, so right about that. 
in George's situation, he really wasn't thinking about anything more than himself. Now all of a sudden his dad is sick and he's got this girl that he didn't have just a half hour earlier who cares for him deeply, is smitten with him and all of life is falling apart. And we do that sometimes. We get our own plans, but we exclude God from that situation. And so when life throws a curveball or steps in or just someone else makes a, a autonomous decision on their own, it throws us off. And we don't know how to respond and react to their autonomous decision that impacts our life or when there's just something that is well outside of our control, like a family member getting sick. We didn't plan for that. So what do you do? Just ignore it? No, you have to respond and react to that appropriately. And here's George. And I think he does the right thing, but unfortunately now he's got a competing battle internally he's never had before. And so when God sets our plans, even when those things change, when we get outside of ourselves, he's going to be right there with us along the way to walk us through that. This one thing that the movie doesn't actually bring in is the whole idea that God is not just sending angels down to work on our behalf. He's actually speaking to us clearly and allowing us to listen to him, to seek him, to walk with him. And even through the toughest of times, God is there with us individually. It doesn't require an angel for that. It's actually God's spirit who dwells within the hearts of those who know him and love him and have committed themselves. The Holy Spirit of God actually does dwell within those who have accepted him as a down payment for the future of God's collection. And so if you are a Christ follower, you have that Holy Spirit, that small voice of God that is speaking to you all the time. That also means you get to strangle that out sometimes and ignore that, and your sin gets to cover it up and put, the, put your, your, your spiritual fingers in your spiritual ears and not listen to. And so we have a great gift whenever God has given us this spirit that we may have that. So we don't need angels for those reasons. Now George runs home, and he finds out his dad actually is going to die very, very soon. And now that he has this business, this building and loan business where everybody is borrowing money. And there's really two competing things. There's this great rich man named Potter who owns everything and he's a slumlord. Uh, it's actually where the term comes from in our current vernacular. Right now. It's from this movie that ideal slumlord got very popular because of this. He owns everything. He's charging exorbitant rent. And then there's the Bailey building and loan. And he's helping people to build houses and loans. $5,000 back then could build a house. Wouldn't that be great? $5,000 doesn't even get you in to talk with a realtor right now in Katy, Texas. And so, so he has this building and loan business, and the ideal that George is going to go travel the world and go off to college, do everything, that's gone. It's done. George now has to take over the family business or let it fold up and let Potter own everything. And George is faced with this dilemma because there's lots of people in this town who are doing business with a handshake and with a word back when people used to do that. And Bailey is who they could do that with, but they couldn't do that with mean old Mr. Potter and so the board meets, and they, they get together, and George says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, they've, they've actually brought Potter onto the board so that he can have a controlling interest because he has some resources. And so the board talks, and George says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm ready to call it quits, but you know what? My dad stood on principle, and he wants this place to stay, if for no other reason, so people have a, another option other than going to this mean old Mr. Potter. And so George walks out, and as he's walking out, they come up to him, and they say, George... We want you to stay. The board said we'll keep the company going, but only if you stay and run it. Now George's ideals of traveling the world and going off to college are done. And so I want us to watch this clip and pull a little bit out of this because it's really interesting how George responds and reacts. Our money. <laughs> what does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute. Just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But 
neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was why in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me, but he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Well, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them, until they're so old and broken down that the... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're, the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. George can't help himself but be a person of character and principle because that's what he learned from his father. And even in his impassioned cry to get out of that little town, he sucked himself back into it. And the board comes back after this scene and they say, hey, listen, we're going to keep the building and loan going, but you have to run it. And now here's George not able to make a decision to go off and leave again. So George decides to do that and he lives there for a while and he meets, he gets back with Mary and they fall in love and they have children and uh, Uncle Billy, who's kind of a ditz, loses $8,000, which is going to close the entire building and loan. He actually loses it in a newspaper, and guess what? Mr. Potter finds it, puts it into his safe, and doesn't have the integrity to come back and bail George out. He can care less about George. George is right about him. To him, people are just cattle. For George, people mean something. They're the heart and soul of the community. They're, they're family to him. And so George is bottled up by his principles. He's He's confounded to be able to do what he has to do, but now Uncle Billy loses this money, and that means someone's going to go to jail. There's going to be an inquiry, and George once again takes the responsibility of that. And so instead of ratting out Uncle Billy, George says, it's on me. And George finds himself actually in a pretty tough situation, and this is where a lot of us can really identify. When all the frustrations of life pile up upon us, whenever we start having decisions made for us instead of managing our own lives and making decisions ourselves, once we get to that boiling point, things blow up. And it's the people that we care the most about who suffer the most. And so as we watch this next clip, I really want to encourage you, don't just be entertained by this. I want you to really be encouraged about that time where you were George Bailey where you acted very similar and said things very common to what he's about to say. Let's watch this together. Excuse me. Have a hectic day? Oh, yeah. Another big red-letter day for the babies. Daddy, the Browns next door have a new car. You should see it. Well, what's the matter with our car? Isn't it good enough for you? Yes, Daddy. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse you for what? I burped. All right, tell me your excuse. Now go on upstairs and see if little Zuzu wants anything. Zuzu, well, what's the matter with Zuzu? 
Oh, she's got a cold. She's in bed. Caught it coming home from school. They gave her a flower for a prize, and she didn't want to crush it, so she didn't button up her coat. What is the sore throat or what? Just a cold. The doctor says it's The doctor? Was the doctor here? Yes, I called him right away. Said nothing to worry Is she about. running at temperature? What is this? Just a teensy one. 99.6. She'll be all right. Of course, it's this old house. I, I don't know why we don't all have pneumonia. The drafty old barn of a place. Might as well be living in a refrigerator. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly, crummy old town? George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell Frankenstein? I don't know. Why, ask your mother. Where are you going? Go out to see Zeus. You told me to ride a play for tomorrow. you learned that silly tune yet you play it over and over again now stop it stop it What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Oh, Daddy. <laughs> George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you? Tommy and Jeannie had it figured out. Should we pray for him? And, you know, at any given point, we could probably all associate where we've said something we weren't supposed to say or shouldn't have said, but that was, that was inside. And so when it's inside and he gets to the right temperature, it's going to come out. And when that comes out on us, man, everybody else pays the price. And George is making everybody else pay the price. And I appreciate Mary saying, George, why must you torture the children this way? George is going to run out of the house here in just a minute. He's going to run down to the local bar. He's going to have way too much to drink. He's going to get into a fight with the guy that he was on the phone with, which was the teacher's husband, and he's going to get sucked in the mouth, and he deserves that. He deserves that. And then George is going to run out to the bridge, and he thinks he's going to end it all by committing suicide. And I just want to be honest with us just for a second and not skip over this whole situation because this happens in our society. It's always happened in our society. It's because we don't take the right time to address that there is a difficult time, especially during the holidays for people, when the stress of keeping up with the Joneses. What's the matter with our car? Isn't it good enough? 
when the stress of the kids that are just getting on your last nerve while you're trying to keep the house that's drafty, you know, afloat and keep it awake, we all get stressed and sometimes we make some very terrible and harmful self-decisions. And sometimes it's attributed to a lot of different things. And part of that, and the simple big global answer for that, is that we are fallen. And in this sinful world, we are prone to do exactly what the enemy wants to do, and that is destroy the image of God, which each of us are the image bearers of God. And since Satan cannot defeat God himself, he has thought that he would go after those that remind him of God, which is you and I. And as a result of the fall and as a result of sin that is in our lives, we're going to make decisions that are often self-destructive. And some of them are emotionally self-destructive, some of them are physically self-destructive, and there's the whole gamut in between. And sometimes that pours over into others, and if we just kind of brush over that and just say, oh, it's just the holiday blues, hey, yeah, that exasperates that a little bit. Or if in George's case, we, we go into a medicinal ideal where it's alcohol or it's drugs, whether it be prescription or anything else, we just exasperate that, but we never actually deal with those troubles. I actually think it was a blessing that George gets punched in the mouth because he realized a little bit that he can't defeat his problems on his own. He needs help. And thank goodness for those two kids of his somewhere, Mary, I think might have raised them right. Should we pray for daddy? Absolutely, you should pray for daddy. As we should for one another, especially during this time of year. And George does what a lot of us do, and we all think internally and very selfishly in a lot of ways, what would this world be like if I did not exist? And so as George is standing at the edge of the bridge, he's jumping into the cold, icy water in Bedford Falls, Minnesota, I think it is. It's cold. It's north of Texas, so it's cold. As he's contemplating this, he hasn't quite made this decision. That's where this angel Clarence jumps into the water, and George, being who he is, jumps in to save him. Later on, there's a little bit of a dialogue there where George and Clarence were going, why did you jump into that water? He goes, well, I knew, George, you'd jump in to save me, and so I had to stop you from making a bad decision. Friends, the truth of the matter is this, is that any opportunity we can to intervene in someone's life to help them make a bad decision is always a good thing, and it's always challenging. Unfortunately, what we bottle up sometimes is that we believe that we have the ability to change other people's minds, and we don't. We can encourage them, we can influence them, we can pray for them, we can love them unconditionally. We can be there for them as best as humanly possible, and we should be, because there aren't always angels like Clarence around to help talk us out of making a bad decision. This is actually one of the darkest things of this entire movie, and it's really what makes the end of the movie so uplifting. But in the process of this conversation, Clarence and George develop this relationship as he takes him around these places and he shows him people who their lives turned out differently because George had never been born because he had never interacted with them. George actually rescued his little brother when he was eight years old from falling through the ice. That never happened if George wasn't born. George actually helped bail out the company and all these people. The name of the town actually changes from Bedford Falls to Pottersville, because Potter does actually own everything, because George had never been born. You know, it's a common thing for us to be very self-reflective and just think the rest of the world would be better off without us. And I want to tell you something. That is an outright lie. It is an absolute lie of the enemy, and we should not buy into that. Yeah, do we do some things we shouldn't do? Do we harm people? Do we hurt people? Yes, we do, each and every one of us. We say things, we do things, we don't say things and don't do things, and people still get hurt. But God has placed each and every one of us here with purpose and plan. And George Bailey learned two very important lessons from his relationship with Clarence. And the first of those lessons is this. No one fully knows the value of his own life. No one fully knows the value of his own life. And we start to assign our own value by how we think other people respond or react or like or dislike us. We miss out that the value of our own life is determined by God himself. And the first thing that we need to know is he made us in his image. 
The second thing we need to know is that he has provided for us everything that we've ever needed. And the third thing we need to know is that he sent his one and only son to die for us, thus assigning a value to us that we could never even ever possibly begin to understand on our own. It is only by God's love alone that he says, you are so valuable to me that I would give my only son for you. That's value. That's value and that's worth that seems so indescribable. But but this time of year, we have to fully understand because Mary pondered these things in her heart whenever she was told she was going to bear the child, the son of God. She hid those things up in her heart. And that day when she stood at the foot of the cross and she watched her son there hanging with three nails and watched someone put a spear in his side, she knew that day was coming for 33 years. And she understood that she was valued. Mary was valued among women whenever the the angel came to her and said, Blessed are you among women and the fruit of thy womb. It wasn't just that she was special and selected. She had a heart that loved God and she was valued. God said, you're going to understand this value for all of humanity probably in a different way than everybody else, but you are valued. George Bailey learned that lesson. No one fully understands the value of their own life. If you have your Bible this morning, I do want to encourage you to open it with me to Psalm chapter 34. And I actually think I put the wrong reference up there on the screen this morning. I just thought about that. I think I put Psalm chapter 37. Oh, no, I did it right. Psalm 34. I thought it was Psalm 30. Psalm, Psalm chapter 34, verse 17 through 20 is our primary text this morning. And I want us to look at this and understand the first of those lessons, that no one fully understands the value of their own life. And the reason is you can't do that on your own. You have to have that value affirmed and assigned by God and by others, and God does that. Psalm chapter 34, verses 17 through 20. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many doubts, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. That's an amazing thing for God to say is that, listen, I know that you're hurting. I know that you're sad. I know that you're downtrodden. I know things may be difficult for you, but I'm here for you. I'm here for you because I've assigned value to you by making you in my image, by sending my son to die for you, and by providing for everything in in between. The Lord knows all of those things, and that's why it's important for us to cry out on our own behalf, and it's important for the rest of us to cry out on behalf of others. Whenever they get pinned down, whenever the world begins to trample on top of them, when the potters of the world come and take everything, including your dignity, when they, when they damage the, the name of your, your father for all that he did for the community, when the community tries to walk out like they did on George Bailey by taking their money away and going to the other bank because all of a sudden their value in their home wasn't what it was, George still stood his ground, but it, it took a toll on him. Man, when people walk in and out of your life, it hurts. It's harmful. When people don't show up on those, those important times, it hurts and it's harmful. But I want to tell you something. Most of the time, people don't know that you needed them at that moment because you haven't brought them into that world. I had a great conversation with a friend just this past week who had lost a loved one this past month. As we were talking about this, I I asked very clearly, tell me about your grieving process. And the person responded, I haven't begun grieving yet. I said, why is that? I need to be strong for the rest of my family. I said, I get that. I understand every part of that. But the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And right now, you're brokenhearted just like the rest of us. And I have to be fair with you. The more you hold that back and keep that for yourself, the less you allow God's children to minister to you and to bless you. 
The God of all comfort comforts us in our time of need so that we might be able to comfort those who need that. And so when we are grieving, when we are in those tough places and we keep that in, and then we, we, it just compounds, right? Well, if people really loved me, they'd know about all these things that were going on. If they really cared for me, they'd be there. They don't know what's going on because when you ask them, hey, how you doing? You go, I'm fine. Everything's great. It's awesome. I just love Christmas. Yay. And you put this show on for them, and they just go, okay, it's great. I mean, you know, we do that in church sometimes. Hey, how you doing? I'm terrible. I'm thinking about shooting the place up. Oh, great. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Wait a minute. What did you just say? I mean, we don't do that because we've become so rude about how we just respond. Oh, everything's great. Everything's fine. And we are a culture that kind of keeps those things to ourselves until it blows up, until we get past where we can't handle that anymore. And here's the thing. You don't have to. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. That doesn't mean he just snaps his fingers and fixes everything. What he says is, I'm bigger than all of these troubles that you have. Fear not. I have overcome the world. I get it. Things are tough. Things are hard. But I hear you and I will deliver you from those troubles. But I won't just deliver your temporary circumstance. I will deliver your very soul into eternity with me in my father's house. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Nobody hears me. Nobody listens to me. Yes, he does. He hears every word. I want to tell you something. When God's children suffer and they're crying and they're broken, he hears every single cry. Every one. And it breaks our father's heart to watch his children suffer. And it it breaks his heart in such a way because he looks at this and says, yes, I can fix all of this with just the snap of my fingers. I could do all of that, but I want them to choose me. I want them to decide that I'm better than their circumstance. I want them to decide that I'm greater than their problems. I want them to know that the sacrifice is greater than me just fixing it for them because you and I have all been there. Someone's bailed us out of this or fixed us out of this, and we don't appreciate. We don't fully understand, and God's saying, I could do all those things, but that's not how this works. And to be perfectly honest with you, the unrighteous don't get that audience with God because their sin keeps us separated from a holy God. And so he's going to have to make a way through Jesus to do that. George Bailey's realizing pretty quickly that he wants to live. He wants to be alive. He wants to go back to this earth, and he wants to see all those lives that he's touched, and he wants to bring them back to a place, but he wants to appreciate it this time. God, I didn't get to go see the world, and I didn't get to go off to college, and I didn't get to go do all this, but I have a beautiful wife, I have four beautiful children, I have friends and a community that loves me, and I could have never have made that happen if I'd planned for that, because my plans were nowhere near what God had for me. George probably would have been a bachelor most of his life, he might have ran around and did all kinds of crazy things, he would have never understood the love and the intimacy of a great wife like Mary never understood the joy of little Zuzu giving him petals to put in his pocket or his kids praying for him or even learning how to spell hallelujah, which even I can't do that. When we make our own plans and take God out of the picture, we're missing out on a lot. And then we compound that by getting angry and frustrated and everything else, and we push God even further. And then we push out our friends and our family and those who care about us. And we all do that. Let's don't think that we don't. And then we get back together at Christmas time and we put on those happy smiles and we sit across the table and we tell stories and we laugh and we joke and all those good things. But what happens when it actually gets real? I'm actually convinced that we don't really get into good, solid conversations about Christmas, especially until we start talking about Jesus. I think it's good to be around family. I think it's good to laugh and remember and tell those jokes and talk about all this. I think that's wonderful, but I don't think we fully experience Christmas until we bring Jesus into the picture. 
until we understand that just the thing that brings us together is that we are all part of humanity in need of salvation that can only be offered by this precious child that's going to be born in this humble of ways out in the middle of nowhere in a tiny little town outside of Jerusalem. And that God's going to supernaturally rescue him from Herod who's trying to stop Christmas like we talked about last week by killing all the children under age two. No one understands the value of their own life because it cannot be assigned by what we achieve on our own, what we accomplish on our own, what we do by ourselves. It must be assigned the value according to who God says we are and how he uses others to affirm that and how we're put into the mix to influence other people's lives. I love my wife, I love my children, I love my family, I love my friends, I love my church. And even though I want to strangle every one of them at some given point, I understand that not only was I placed in their life to see that they would know God and see him through me, but they were placed in my life to see the same thing. Parents, you can probably relate. There are moments by which your children regurgitate something that you didn't think they learned 10, 15 years earlier, and suddenly they spit that out, and they kind of throw it in your face, you know, because they're kind of mouthy punks, you know. And you hear your words come back from your children and you realize, oh my gosh, they were actually paying attention, they were listening, and they were right. I got news for you, that's nothing but God working. And so had God not placed you in their lives to learn that lesson and them to teach that to the next generation, do you really know the value of your own life? You can't know that fully, but what you can know is the love of God and how you pass that on and God has placed people in your life for purpose. I want us to watch one more clip here as well, and it's everyone's favorite clip, and we'll discuss the end of that. But let's watch this together. Mary did a church, Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions, just in charge in trouble. Tell me, you spent like Another run on the bank? It's from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh.
flew through all the way up here in a blizzard. Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Had a boy, Clarence. I caught all of you singing both songs. Apparently, if there's a warrant for your arrest and it gets torn up, you've busted into Christmas carols, so that's a good thing. The second lesson that George learned from this was right there at the very end, that no man is a failure who has friends. And while that's not, not great, deep theological teaching there, I think it's really good for us to say and to understand, and especially this time of year. I, I know I'm one of those people that, man, I think about friends this time of year more so than normal, and I call them, even those that I haven't seen in a long time, and I'll send them a text or an email or something through Facebook or whatever, and, and I do look back upon the past and how they impacted my life and how I impacted theirs, and even the character of the man that I am today has a lot to do with those influences uh, from my past, maybe that I haven't seen for the last 10 years or so. And while Clarence did write that nice little note there for him, no man is a failure who has friends, it's important for us to understand that. And even going back to our passage in, in, uh, in the Psalms there, that God is close to the brokenhearted, and he says that I am indeed going to bring you into relationship with me so that we might no longer be enemies of God, but we might be friends of God. And I know some people are challenged by that statement themselves, but I tell you what, if you had your choice between the two, friend or enemy, you would certainly most likely choose friend. But what this really gets us to is just the simplicity of John chapter 15, verse 3, and it's a verse that we all know, but I think it's a good one for us to end on this morning. Is it greater love hath no man that he would lay down his life? for his friends. Christmas time was a time by which God said, I'm going to formulate this plan. I'm going to send my child down here to live a perfect sinless life for 30 years, and then I'm going to take his life from him. I'm going to do this so that his friends, you and me, might know the truth of real salvation, might know the truth of real sacrifice, might know that there is a loving creator God who would do anything in the world to reconcile us. You know, sometimes between friends you have to swallow a little bit of pride. Sometimes you have to say you're sorry even when you're not guilty or you might not mean it that much because the friendship means more than the battle, than the argument. Jesus says, greater love hath no man that he would lay down his life for his friends. And if you are one of those people today that says, I've never fully understood that. I don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that a friend loves in all times. And he's there for us. And he did that for us. And it started that starry night out in that manger and field with a couple of shepherds that were out there. Jesus saying, you know what? I got an idea. I'm going to make a whole lot of friends. And this is how I'm going to do it. If you have done that, if you have made that commitment to follow Christ and you can look at him and say, my friend died for me. He gave me eternal life. I want you to celebrate that this Christmas more so than ever.
And yes, it's great to have family and friends. And I think George's brother was partially right that George was indeed the richest man in town. What happened was the community got together and they heard about the $8,000 and everything was going to shut down. And everybody took everything they had and they stopped living so selfishly. They even went into the sacrifice mode and they said, you know what, it's more important for a guy like George Bailey who's poured out his life for everybody in this community to stay afloat because that matters to us more than. And we'll take care of all the rest of that. Just as God said, all those other things are trivial and they're on the edges of everything else. But what matters more than anything is that this relationship is maintained. And because my creation has separated me because of sin, I'm going to fix this relationship with my son Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about a child who would come just so he could lay his life down for his friends so that we might have eternal life. And so I hope you'll celebrate with us this Christmas that true meaning that is there. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for being our friend and that we might approach the throne of grace with confidence so that mercies may be poured out to us, that we might make plans, Lord, with you involved, that you might direct us, that, Father, you might move us to the places where we would be. And, Father, especially this time of year where it's the most wonderful time, where it's the most joyous of time, Father, this can be a challenging time for so many people for a variety of reasons. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that you are close to the brokenhearted. God, as long as we walk this earth, we will deal with broken hearts on one level at some point. Whether it be a job we didn't get or a present that we wanted and didn't get. The loss of a loved one, Lord, or even the loss of a job. God, you understand all of those things and you don't put any conditions on that. You just say you'll be close to the brokenhearted. And so, God, I pray this year that, that we would also just have a broken heart for the things that break yours, and that's to see your creation suffer and struggle. Father, I know that breaks your heart. And so that we might bring forth the message of Jesus, the trust and the promise in him alone. That this child would be born in such a humble way and die a terrible death within a generation, Lord. So that we might understand the true meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of friendship, the true meaning of salvation. And that's the greatest gift of all, Lord, that you gave us your one and only son. Father, we, we thank you for hokey ways like media to give us some of those glimpses in that too. And Father, just to help us understand that we really all do stand on common ground, Lord. We all suffer a variety of things and have relationship issues, but Lord, you've taken care of all that. Father, teach us to love one another. Teach us to be more compassionate, to be more caring and kind, not just during the Christmas season, but all year long. Father, we love you and we bless you, and we ask this in Christ's name.